This episode is brought to you by Quarter. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket for free. Their main mission is to create a completely new bridge between companies and shareholders and really to reinvent investor relations as we know it. You can try out Quarter today by typing in Q-U-A-R-T-R in your app store of choice. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R or simply click the link in the show notes. And there's five key points to remember about Quarter. One, Quarter is completely free. Two, they include companies from over 16 markets today and plan to add more over time. Three, they easily allow new companies on their platform by simply requesting the ticker of the company and they'll get back to you instantly. Four, users can now leave reactions while listening to calls to make their voices heard. And five, again, it's free and I only back products that I believe in and products that I use every single day. Quarter is an everyday part of my process and I wouldn't live without it. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Try it out today. I'm also excited to announce our newest sponsor, Tegas. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available interviews on all the public and private companies you care about. All you have to do is log in and type in a stock ticker or a keyword. For example, if you're interested in gaming stocks, you can type in RBLX for Roblox, or type in the keyword metaverse and instantly read hundreds of calls on the company and industry. Tegas actually makes primary research fun and effortless too. Instead of weeks and months, you can learn a new industry or company in hours, and all from those that know it best. Now, I only sponsor products that I use every day, and Tegas is no exception. Since joining, I spend nearly all my time reading Tegas calls on existing companies and new ideas into my portfolio, and I know you will too. So if you're interested, head on over to tegas.co forward slash value hive for a free trial to see for yourself. Again, that's tegas.co forward slash value hive. I have the privilege of speaking with Stephen Deal. He's a London-based software engineer and outspoken uh, critic of crypto, Web3, NFTs, and pretty much that entire um you know, that entire ecosystem that seems to be so rampantly bullish uh, for anybody that's that's on the Twitter sphere. Um, but we're going to discuss a lot of things today. And this episode is for two types of people. It's one, it's, it's, it's for the people that are, we'll call it uh, crypto, Web3, NFT maximalists, quote unquote, that don't see any necessarily bear cases to what they're excited about. But it's also for the person that's on the fence um, that has kind of both feet in the space. One is in the bearish space. One is in the bullish space, um, kind of like myself, uh, just to get a crash course education on the dark side of some of these technologies. So with that said, we're going to dive into crypto, Web3, NFTs, Armenia, and crypto assets. So Stephen, this is going to be a great episode. Thanks so much for coming on. When did you start studying crypto and Web3? Hi, Brandon. Lovely to have you on the podcast today for the conversation. Um, so I started um, researching the cryptocurrency space about four to five years ago, back when it was kind of, kind of at the height of the first bubble that we saw. Uh, that's when I kind of first delved into the nuts technology. And at that point in time, it had taken over a little bit of my field, like the software industry. And I started to have to be kind of unavoidable that I could kind of not look into the details of it. And um, 
ever since then, I've been kind of very skeptical about some of the technology that I've seen because it seems to be very much um, a solution in search of a problem. And the deeper I dive into this field, the more it seems like there's some fundamentally intractable problems at the heart of it. Got it. And when did you feel the urge to start writing about it publicly? Because it's one thing to recognize it personally and and to kind of develop these theories, but then it's a whole nother instance to publish your thoughts publicly and and kind of take that stance. Yeah, I've become sort of a fairly kind of reluctant skeptic of the whole space. Um, it wasn't until about like two years ago when the space kind of really blew up to the point where it started having sort of like market moving <laughs> potentials or like, you know, kind of geopolitical implications on a much larger scale that I felt that like the voice of a lot of software engineers wasn't being accurately reflected in like the coverage that kind of the CNBCs and the Bloombergs um, were giving on the topic. And so the way other software engineers talk about these things is vastly different than the way the media does. In and what way? I really, well, um, inside of the software engineering space, there's a great deal of skepticism about cryptocurrency. Like it's seen with a very critical lens um, and not a lot of the large tech firms have embraced it. Uh, that should kind of be telling about that. Um, and so like that opinion really never gets heard. And so like I have felt kind of a compulsion to kind of write what I thought was kind of the the working, everyday working engineers perspective on these things that was being mm. not represented. And one of the consequences of taking such a contra stance, especially in that tech early adopter community, uh, is the potential to be kind of ostracized for certain beliefs. And there, there's probably no, no more explosive of a space to be ostracized um, in the tech community than the frontier of crypto and Web3. So my, I, I'm, I'm interested if you experienced any of that, whether it was from you know, people you knew in your, in your professional field or people that reached out to you on Twitter, just the, the ostracizer, or maybe even hate mail that, that, that you've received since kind of taking this contra stance. <laughs> um, ostracization within my field, um, I dare say that the opinions that I express are the ones that are probably held by the vast majority of working software engineers. So if anything, inside of my field, I've been kind of widely praised for taking the stance. Um, but like, certainly there's a lot of like crypto maximalists whose, you know, <laughs> their returns are based on promoting these investment schemes and they don't particularly like what I say that much. Um, but that's a very small group of people. They're very vocal. But like your average person is not a you know a Bitcoin maximalist that feels the need to lash out at every single crypto skeptic, um, and so I do get a lot of hate mail. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> I think some of the weirder stuff is like just people are very deranged in that space. They really feel the need to kind of lash out at anyone that potentially says anything negative about their investments. Mm -hmm. Which you know <laughs> to kind of quote Warren Buffett, like you know. You should be welcoming criticism of you know, other investments. opinions. You can buy more of them because they're undervalued, right? right? So, you know, if you truly believe that these things are worthwhile, then it shouldn't matter what the skeptics say about them, really. Yeah, I mean, and and going even further, if 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 these maximalists on whether it's crypto or Web three believed in the underlying value, then they would they would be retweeting you and 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 praising you for 
for what you're uncovering in the space because it allows them to buy these assets, quote unquote, at cheaper valuations with, you know, valuations in air quotes as well. Unless, of course, there is no like intrinsic value and it's all about recruiting more and more fools into the scheme, of course, but <laughs> which, like, which, yeah. which we will, which, which we will definitely dive into one, one last question as we, as we wrap up this introduction is when, when, when you've gone through the space, developed these theories, tested these hypotheses against what you're seeing in, in, inside crypto land, are there any presuppositions that you have, um, kind of exposed in, in, in your own thinking as, as, as not true. And you've actually kind of reversed your, your opinion on some things inside crypto or have, have your opinions been well validated by what you've seen empirically in what's going on? Um, I think my opinions have been validated by my experience. I still see a lot of scams. Um, my opinion on these things is actually far more moderate than most people know, actually. In my general thesis that these things, if they're going to be let to exist, should be brought within the regulatory perimeter. Um, and that's a far more moderate position than I think most people think I have. Um, and if that was the case, then I probably would stop criticizing most of these things um, because I think a lot of the risk would be squeezed out of them. And then if there is any kind of value, then that could be let to bloom. Mm-hmm. But right now we're kind of still working on just getting the regulatory perimeter around them. And so I'm a bit more on the side, but uh, presuppositions on this, you know, my presuppositions are kind of basic, <laughs> kind of like, you know, Keynesian understanding of economics and sort of value investing and my understanding of computer science and the confluence of all three of those areas of study have led me to think that, you know, there's kind of no there there. I think the emperor is kind of running around with no clothes at the moment. Hmm. And one way to kind of set the stage for this conversation using using history as our guide, right? Because uh, history doesn't repeat, but it but it rhymes. And one way it rhymes that you outlined in a podcast that you did it was actually released yesterday. Uh, I listened to it in 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 prep for this one, and you described the 1990s in I believe it was Armenia. And I'm going to set the stage for the listeners, and 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 you can expound on this. But at one point in Armenia, 30% of the country's GDP was held in speculative pyramid slash Ponzi type schemes, um, which is mind blowing to think about. So why don't you use that as kind of this intro to set the framework for where we are with crypto and Web3 today by by reviewing what happened in Armenia in the 90s. Sure, that's a great example, actually, because it's one of those like, uh, not well understood kind of footnotes in the history textbooks. So it's actually Albania, not Armenia, actually. Ah. Um, but Albania basically shifted away from a centrally planned uh, communist state economy um, to kind of a market economy uh, in after the Soviet bloc fell in the, uh, after the uh, 1990. So what happened was that the people had been living under communism their entire life. Um, and it wasn't clear that they had the kind of intuition or the institutions in their society about, you know, what are sensible investments and uh, what are sustainable kind of ways to pool money around uh, common ventures, right, like we have in the United States. Um, And so what happened was a lot of kind of opportunistic folks decided to create very, very large investment funds that allegedly would invest in public works or they invest in you know, common enterprises that would generate some sort of yield allegedly and then that would return to the fund. 
right? Um, and that they promise returns based on that. So the principal, the principal value, that's a sensible thing to do, except when you have no regulation um, and you take other people's money, that's kind of a perverse incentive just to run off with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's exactly what happened, right? So these things became massive pyramid schemes uh, that was sucking in large amounts of money from the public. And they promised things like, you know, 60, 70% returns, like completely unsustainable things, but because they were just robbing Peter to pay Paul, right? They're basically um, paying out a few of the investors that kind of create the illusion of solvency when in fact all the money was being kind of drained by the operators. Um, And it turns out the lesson of history is that these things can grow to a very, very large scale if they're left unchecked. Uh, It got to the point where basically the government was like in on these schemes instead of regulating them, basically the officials decided to like become part of them. And, you know, eventually at some point, every pyramid scheme has to collapse because it's an unsustainable enterprise. And that's exactly what happened. Um, and the resulting aftermath was absolutely horrible for the people of Albania. Um, the country descended into civil war, all their money was gone. And, you know, so it's a really hard lesson that uh, kind of complete laissez-faire capitalism with no regulation and tends to produce some sort of pathological structures. And the similarity between those structures and what we see in the completely unregulated cryptocurrency space are somewhat uncanny. When I hear that story, the first thing that pops to mind is what's going on in El Salvador. And even this week, uh, I think it was Moody's or S&P or one of, the, one of the big bond rating agencies, they downgraded El Salvador due to their kind of crypto trades. And when I hear that story about Albania, I that's that that's the first thing i go to like is this history repeating itself um and and will the consequences of the president of el salvador's actions result in something similar whether it's you know war or you know extreme poverty uh throughout the country it's 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 pretty remarkable how how this is overlapping yeah well salvador's a tricky case at the moment um El Salvador already is not exactly like a bastion of like liberal democracy. Uh, it's basically a dictatorship at the moment. And the dictator decided to like take public funds and then go gamble them on the Bitcoin market. Um, I think that's going to end very, very badly. I mean, Moody's just downgraded their, you know, sovereign credit score down, down quite a bit. And uh, I can't see, I mean, nobody's actually using this Bitcoin as a medium of exchange in El Salvador. It's basically purely kind of... Um, for show for basically, you know, <laughs> a dictator there to basically go gamble with public money. Um, and this seems not good for the average El Salvadorian citizen. And I'm deeply worried about what's going to happen um, if there's a kind of sudden flash crash in this thing, like that could wipe out a percentage of the country's GDP overnight. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's going to be fascinating to see the ramifications of that. Hopefully it's not, you know, too terrible for, for, for the citizens, but, um, I, I want to dive into your blog post uh, on the case against crypto, which I know I, 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 I had at the end, but I think it fits better kind of right here as we segue out of Albania and El Salvador. Uh, because this post, the case against crypto, was the first post that got me interested in reading more of your work. And it, 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 it led me to follow you, and then it led me to follow. I think there's a crypto skeptics um, like list in, in, in Twitter, that's very fascinating that I followed that. Um, and so in, in this case against crypto, you outlined four you know, main issues, we'll call them. So the first one is the technology does not solve a real problem. Second one is so-called cryptocurrencies aren't actually currencies and cannot fulfill the function of money. 
The third issue, the history of private money is one of repeated disasters that destroy public trust. And then the last one, crypto assets are all unregistered securities. So let's expand on each of these issues against crypto. And if I can, I'll try to do my best to play devil's advocate with you, although for the most part, I have chauffeur's knowledge. So let's start with the top one. The technology does not solve a real problem. That's a pretty big claim to make. So walk us through why you think that is. Well, we just have to answer the question like, what do crypto assets exist to do? Um, the answer to that is I mean, largely they're a risk asset that people speculate on. Um, they don't fulfill a purpose other than sort of <laughs> having this risk asset that kind of randomly oscillates around, which has no fundamental value, uh, which people kind of gamble on by attempting to you know, buy low and sell high, except there's actually no kind of <laughs> fundamental underlying enterprise or intrinsic value to the thing. Um, and so the notion that this is like a peer-to-peer -peer payment system is largely kind of died away. And so what we're left with is a bunch of like asset bubbles that people just like to gamble on. Um, and so any kind of techno-utopian vision that kind of once existed around the technology has kind of since faded away into basically just pure gambling. And so in the sense, the technology works to do that, except it doesn't really work to do anything but that. And that use case is of somewhat limited util you know, societal value. So if we step inside the world of video games and digital worlds, how do you, do you think that that claim still stands where there might be problems inside, let's call it, you know, a digital space, a metaverse, what have you, um, where creators or people inside of that digital economy need to exchange, you know, uh, call it money for goods or services performed in that world. Do you think that the cryptocurrency itself, the underlying technology solves a problem in that space? Uh, or, or, or do you think it's something deeper where really doesn't solve any problem, whether it's the, 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 the real, you know, material world that 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 we know today versus the 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 digital space of tomorrow so i disagree with that proposition for two different reasons like number one um in order for it to be a payment mechanism it would have to fulfill the function of money um and it's not terribly useful to say you know use a hyper volatile speculative risk asset as a medium of exchange mm -hmm. um and if you really wanted to do that, why wouldn't you simply just take, you know, dollars for your in-game video game purchases or euros or something, something that actually fulfills, you know, the function of money that's stable, that can kind of reliably, you know, exchange at a specific price uh, for some digital assets. Um, and the second point is that all of these, you know, so-called fiat currencies are already digital. Um, so the notion that, like, <laughs> that you have any sort of advantage in having sort of an allegedly natively digital currency is kind of mute because the dollar is for the most part already being <laughs> digitized. So I don't see the added advantage for kind of, you know, not using just regular currencies in the virtual space because that's what I already say and it works very well. Yeah. And I've always, I've always viewed one of the biggest issues against, against crypto is, is that idea of like what's stopping the U S government from just issuing you know, we and 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 before we hit record, we we discussed this idea of of stable coins. Like, what's what's the what's stopping the U.S. government from issuing like a USD stable coin, where it does everything that uh, Ethereum and Bitcoin do? It's just you know, it's it's your regular U.S. dollars just in the digital space. 
the notion of stable coins is actually a bit different. So like, unlike the other kind of risk assets like Bitcoin, Ethereum, or Dogecoin or something, mm -hmm. stable coins are sort of dollar or euro derivative products that basically have a stable value. So they're pegged to you know the value of the dollar, right? Mm -hmm. And allegedly they're kind of backed up by a, a reserve real world asset that kind of um, can be redeemed um, you know, to, re to return the dollars when on demand. Um, so it's not clear to me what the advantage is to using a dollar derivative versus just using dollars, right? There are certainly some use cases where companies which can't get banking access would probably want to use some sort of dollar derivative because they kind of exist outside the law. But that's a very, very niche use case. And yeah. with the stable coins, it's not clear to me what the advantage uh, because stable coins, like first approximation, are basically acting like banks, right? <laughs> they take customer deposits, and then allegedly they kind of give you the capacity to redeem um, the balance of your stable coin address for some, you know, real world dollars at some point. Um, and basically, the United States government basically says, yeah, basically things be regulated as banks. Um, so at that point, you're basically talking about like basically a bank which holds digital dollars or digital digital uh, derivative dollars instead of actual dollar from the Fed. Uh, and it's not clear to me what the advantage of that is over just like using a normal bank. Uh, when you make a claim like the technology, you know, the crypto technology does not solve a real problem and you get criticism from that and people in the crypto community respond saying, no, you're wrong, this is why. Like what examples do they use then to kind of refute what you're saying? Maybe the main examples or something. Well, not a lot of their criticism is actually very good. Most of it's kind of a sling of insults. But <laughs> if I if I look at some more of the more refined criticisms, um, I think some of them reject the notion that it's a payment rail at all, um, mm -hmm. and they think that it's just some fundamental valueless, uh, fundamentalist valueless risk asset that exists for speculation, and that kind of justifies its own existence. Right. Um, and you know that that's I could go into why I don't necessarily believe that's the case. Uh, but that's kind of their their use case. If it's you know, well, it's just like any other kind of speculative product. Um, and you know, um, it's not the thesis that I hold. And then the stable coins ones. I think people kind of think that like, oh, maybe this is like a better way to build a digital payment rail system for like the dollar. And I kind of reject that notion because I think. The only advantages that these some of these products would possibly have over traditional payment rails is that they're unregulated at the moment, which introduces a lot of risk uh, for your average everyday consumer. And if they were to kind of scale up to the point where they could be usable by, like, say, my grandmother, um, they probably would just be recreating systems and processes that already exist, right? So what you created a bank and that uses like a distributed ledger at its core, but it's still fulfilling mm -hmm. the function of a bank, right? Yeah. And if you add things like transaction reversal and like consumer protection, then you have somebody you can call up on the phone to reverse transactions. You basically destroyed the entire like decentralization promise of the entire project in the first place. And you just recreated something that already exists, but using a much slower technology. And it's not clear to me what the value add is there. Yeah. And there's there's kind of this underlying theme of, and I think you've mentioned it, um, whether it was in the podcast or in, or in one of the blogs that you've written, but 
there's a desire inside of the community to tear down the existing structures, but there's not really a clear and compelling case for what or why um, the products that they want to build in place of those structures make sense. And I like that sounds like a very net negative, right? To just deconstruct what we have, take this, um, you know, I don't want to say like anarcho-capitalist view, but take take something that's very extreme and say, you know, down with regulations. Let's let's burn all the preconceived notions of of payments and and corporate structures to the ground, and let's introduce these things. But I'm not sure that enough is being discussed on like, well, is that even a net positive? What you're doing when it's all said and done? Yeah, it's funny enough because I used to go to a lot of like uh, crypto meetups here in the city of London, actually. And it was a very bizarre phenomenon because I'd see like these like investment bankers sitting alongside these like anarchists in the same meeting. And like the crypto anarchists would be like, oh, we need to burn down the whole financial system. And then like a phoenix, this new system will arise that will, you know, usher in a new era of utopia. And then the bankers are always like, oh, but does it run on Excel? Um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that was the kind of big joke. So we have these two groups of people that like couldn't quite wrap their heads around this whole thing. And, you know, you're right. Um, the crypto narrative is that they're building a whole new financial system on top of some new technology. Um, except to me, it doesn't look like that's the case. It seems like they're slowly reinventing the things that already exist, but in a far riskier way that doesn't incorporate a lot of the wisdom that we've kind of baked into the normal financial system for the last, you know, 300 years. And they're kind of slowly recreating all of the, <laughs> the historical financial disasters like over and over again. Yeah. Um, and just like take like banks, for instance, like that was, you know, bank loans have been basically eliminated here in the West for like 60 years now, right? We haven't had a single one because we figured out like the right kind of structure to put around these things from a regulatory perspective um, and like an insurance perspective. Um, so now we have banks that have to get deposit insurance and that's backstopped by the government. And, you know, this all works very, very well. Um, it's not clear to me that going back to a more primitive version of that, where we have sort of pseudo banks operating with no consumer protection and no deposit insurance is an improvement. It seems like a kind of regression. Do you think that's, and again, one of the, one of the counter arguments that I could think of for that is the, the, um, let's see the model or, or the version of crypto as such today do you think that the you know the the unregulation, the fraud, the tendency to kind of form these pyramid schemes? Do you think that's embedded in the in the core technology, or do you think that this is merely the growing pains of a technology that's in the early innings that will eventually evolve into something that's less archaic and less suspect, if that makes sense? I happen to take the kind of like Ray Dalio perspective as I see the economy as kind of like a machine. And I think mm -hmm. it has different layers on top of that machine. So at the base level, you have like the money, the treasury. Then you have um, common enterprises like that have you know, equities. And then on top of that, you have things like derivatives and commodities, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that all works very well in the traditional system because the base layer, the bottom of the, the stack, if you will, uh, is the dollar, the euro, the sterling. Um, and those work to fulfill the function of money, and they work very well at that uh, because of the central banking system that we've kind of slowly grown over the last, you know, 200 years. Um, so the problem I see over in the crypto world is that they basically got the base layer wrong. Um, you can't build an economy on this sort of 
neo-metalist uh, sort of pseudo gold standard again. That's kind of going back to a more primitive version of um, an economy that really didn't work very well historically. And so I think if you get the treasury wrong, if you get money itself wrong, I think anything that's going to be built on top of it is going to suffer from the same problems. And so, no, I don't see this as being kind of like, a oh, it's just early. I think the answer they propose is simply not a great foundation on which to build anything. So I think they're building, you know, castles on top of sand. Right. No, that makes sense. And 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 it it allows us to segue into the the third kind of main issue against against crypto is the history of private money is, is, is one of repeated disasters that destroy public trust. We've already discussed the Albanian issues. Are there any other stories from the past that we can kind of use, again, to kind of equip our mental model kit when dealing with crypto today? So a little known chapter in history is actually kind of what's called like the free banking era or the wildcat banking era, mm-hmm. which exists in the late 1800s in the United States. Um, where the Americans basically flirted with the notion that instead of having like a central issuer of you know, the, the national currency, we used to let banks themselves basically issue banknotes um, that were backed by allegedly government bonds. Um, but the banknotes themselves would be kind of disparate between different banks, right? So we basically had private issuers of money at the time. Um, and all over the Midwest, um, Basically, your local bank would issue a very, very specific banknote that you could use and redeem. And you could redeem them at other banks, except they wouldn't trade at the face value of the dollar anymore at par. Uh, they would trade at some fraction of uh, the face value because the bank would have to incur the risk of exchanging with the other bank, right? Hmm. And so this led to like whole books that people would have to buy as a shopkeeper about like what the bank note from this bank is worth in terms of the other one. And yeah. if you wanted to exchange them, you'd have to keep track of all that's in your head. And it's just a real pain for your average person. Like they just want to basically go into a shop and buy, you know, a bag of flour, right? They don't have to worry about, you know, six different exchange rates just to buy something simple. As a shop owner, like you're incurring all of this exchange risk by basically having to trade in like six different notes. Right. So um, what happened is that basically the civil war happened. Um, and as part of that, the United States basically decided to issue what are called greenbacks, which are basically the dollar that we know today. And they were backed by the federal government. Um, and it turns out that when the state basically backstops the currency, um, it turns out to be a much more superior form of exchange than all of these private issued banknotes. And so basically the proper dollar basically pushed out all of these private money at the time. And all of the, the risks eventually went away. And basically the... Uh, in the, late 1800s, the currency was nationalized and there became a single dollar. And it turns out like for most people, the private money world was kind of a disaster. Um, It's just not, I mean, (laughs) you want to have a seamless economy which people can transact with, you know, the least friction possible. And it turns out private money introduces more needless friction and arbitrage opportunities that don't necessarily benefit commerce or the economy. And so like, it's just one of those things where like the government should be the one doing this rather than private entities. And so history has kind of told us how private money kind of goes, except now we seem to be trying to like recreate the wildcat banking era, but online. And it seems to me like fundamentally the same problems will occur. And I've, I've, I've noticed those, those exact problems and what I found, because you know, some 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 background. I'm 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 trying to dip my toes into this Web three NFT stuff, and I and I think the only way that I can have a, you know, 
personally respectable opinion on these things is to actually try it. Um, obviously with like very low sums of money, but, um, you know, like I, I've, I've, I've tried to join DAOs. I joined the constitution DAO and, and got incredibly lucky and 30 X to those people tokens and, and whatnot. But it, when it comes to that transaction and just the massive amounts of friction that are involved, like if I want to, you know, join a DAO, let's say, um, I have to connect my wallet and then I have to buy the tokens and then I have to make sure I have enough Ethereum for gas fees. And then there's like thousands of different cryptos that you can exchange with and they're all at different rates. And just the incredible overload and hurdle you need to get through to like join something or buy something in this space is is massive. And it goes back to the fact that maybe this is just the foundation that's been built isn't solid and it's built on sand and that this isn't just a function of the early adopter early days, that maybe this is just a worse solution to a problem that didn't necessarily exist. Um, but it's fascinating that this stuff has repeated you know, over throughout history, especially in the US. Like, I mean, it's not something you know, far off like Albania in the 90s. It's like, no, like this, this is our history in the United States that happened to us just instead of on computers, it was on pen and paper. I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, the question, you know, does the internet need 30,000 different types of private money that all, you know, exchange a different, you know, exchange rate with each other? I mean, what problem is that solving? Uh, all it is is basically introducing like a lot of walled gardens that happen to take a very, very specific token in which all of the services within that walled garden take a very specific type of money, right, rather than yeah. a universal kind of, um, and so like, that's really great if you're like a rent seeking, you know, toll booth, <laughs> yeah, because then you get to basically just collect transaction fees on top of all of the, you know, exchange opportunities. Um, but for your average person, no, they just want to go on like, you know, amazon.com, pull out their Amex and buy something and like, they don't have a single price. They don't want to have, you know, the exchange rates for 30,000 different types of private money. Um, and so, you know, it's not clear to me that, you know, recreating the wildcat banking era on top of like, you know, platform capitalism in the psychology space is necessarily improving anything other than enriching a few rent figures. Yeah. And that's not something I think is very good. Yeah. And, 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 and you're arguably creating that wildcat banking era on top of exponentially more confusing technology. Um, you know, we like, we know how long it took the masses to adopt a web 2.0 and even today like my my grandparents and even some aspects of 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 the internet um my my own parents kind of seem to struggle with and 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 and, and seem to not understand and a function of that is you know one's willing you know unwillingness to 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 learn for themselves but the other part of that is just a function of like the complexity that's that's embedded in these systems and the other thing that it makes me wonder, and this is something that you discussed in your podcast yesterday, but instead of creating these systems, whether it's DAOs and all these currencies and all these wallets, like why can't we as a society just make it easier for people to join corporations or to invest in more risky assets? Um, like making the process of Joe Average invest in his friend's LLC and just making that process a little bit more seamless, where instead of creating this DAO and having an algorithm make decisions, he says, you know what? Hey, I like Joe's laundromat, but it's so hard for me to become a partner in that given today's regulations and infrastructure. But what if we just change something about that? That way it's easier 
to use what we already have. Like, I think that better solves the problem. Oh, you're exactly right. So I think there's kind of two aspects to that, which I think are kind of two facets of the problem. Number one, I think that like payment infrastructure needs to get better, especially in the United States. Um, I think if the world had, you know, basically instantly settled, you know, peer-to-peer retail payments for most people, then I think a lot of things that um, crypto alleges to solve would kind of be solved by more traditional payment rails. And like Europe's actually quite a bit ahead in that regard, actually, because like uh, the What's called SIPA over in Europe is actually a very, very fast payment rail that works almost instantly in a lot of cases. And um, here in Europe, like things, banking is a lot more seamless than they are in the United States, actually, in many ways. Um, and the second part is you're exactly right. Um, allowing your average retail investor, your kind of like, you know, dentist in Omaha to kind of get exposure to kind of early company formation and kind of invest in more risky common enterprises is not something that the American legal system is very good at doing at the moment. So currently mm-hmm. that's kind of bracketed to a class of investors that are accredited, um, yep. which basically means there's like a means test and kind of a risk tolerance uh, yep. that kind of, you know, forces a lot of retail investors out of these things. And yep. it's clear to me that there needs to be some rethinking of those laws because I think they're kind of unnecessarily prohibitive. It's not clear to me that like going full crypto anarchy is necessarily the right solution because at the end of the day, you still want investor protections around these things. You don't want to have this kind of complete anarchic system where anybody can spin up a common venture and take, you know, $20 billion and like invest in seed capital and then run off with it. Right. So clearly there's some middle ground between like complete anarchism and what we currently have today. And I think that's largely a legal problem though. I think mm-hmm. there needs to be a better investment vehicle for retail to get exposure to early like venture, basically. I mean, it just, it, it, it blows, and this is, this is going off on a little bit of a tangent, but it blows my mind that retail investors can buy cryptocurrencies, but they can't invest in like private enterprise or you know, certain venture deals and stuff like that. Like that to me is mind blowing. Um, it's almost, it's almost like if we, if we, if we look back and, and, and cannabis is, is, is legalized and, and our kids and grandkids are going to be shocked at the stories of how, you know, granddad went and illegally bought weed. I think Tom Segura had like a fantastic stand-up bit. Like to me, that that's kind of the same logic. It's like, it blows my mind that you can buy Dogecoin, um, with all those inherent risks, but you can't invest in someone's local shop because you're not an accredited investor. Yeah, it seems to be the imperfect system. Like they can go off and buy Dogecoin, which is some highly speculative investment with no fundamentals. But you know, if you have you know two Stanford guys that want to you know build a better mousetrap and raise you know twenty million dollars in seed capital to do it, you know that your average retail investor is locked out of that investment. Like one right. of these things seems to be far riskier than the other. Exactly. But to play devil's advocate, though, it's largely due to the fact that when we tried this in the past. Um, a lot of times the courts simply don't have the bandwidth to kind of unwind all of the frauds that can exist hmm. and means testing that to a very small group of people who, you know, if the whole thing goes to zero, like most you know early companies do, then, yeah. you know, they're not going to care that much. Right. Um, hmm. And so like the court has kind of routed around this process by basically saying, okay, you can take on riskier investments if you happen to be able to absorb the risk. And yeah. unfortunately your average retail investor probably can't absorb the risk. So there's kind of two sides of this argument. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And this, this, this brings us into the discussion 
of the incoherence of, of, of crypto assets, right? So we kind of discussed the, the, the three to four main reasons why, um, you know, just the fundamental case against crypto is, is pretty, pretty compelling. But then it, it, it leads us into this foundational question of if cryptocurrency isn't a currency, right? And so maybe it's this, this crypto asset, which is, which is what you titled the blog post. Like what type of asset should crypto be? And then the reason why I think this is so important um, and, I'm, and I'm glad that you kind of took the time to write about this is because the answer that you choose to that question in part dictates how you then think about the utility of that asset. And so you kind of give a few examples and I want to make sure that I get all of them. Um, so one of, the, one of the ways you can view it, right, is as a monetary instrument, so currencies, or you can view it as a commodity um, for hedging and, 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 and certain purposes. You could also view cryptos as a security, whether that's unregulated or, or, or regulated securities. And then the final one that you give is, is crypto as is art. And so walk us through kind of each of these different definitions of crypto and then the ramifications of you know, which definition you choose and then the value of that, of that crypto asset as an underlying. Yeah, so the fundamental like incoherence I see in the narrative as it's presented is that a lot of people want to push cryptocurrency, like namesake implies, as being currencies. Um, but then they also want to talk about how you're going to get rich off of it, as if it's kind of a speculative asset, right? right. And those two are diametrically opposite financial instruments. Quite literally, they have the exact opposite properties of each other, right? For a currency, you want it to have a very relatively stable value, a small amount of inflation. Um, it should be useful as a medium of exchange, a unit of account, and a store of value. Um, and crypto has um, doesn't fulfill those properties very well. Um, if it's a speculative asset, then you know you're looking to appreciate like price returns, like you're looking to basically, you know buy it at a low point and sell it off to some other fool in the future, right? And make a return. Um, that's not what you do with currencies. Uh, you buy currencies to transact in an economy and use as a medium of exchange. Um, so I reject the notion that it's a monetary instrument outright because it seems to really suck at that. Right. Um, I think most, most crypto people would actually partially agree with that at this point now. Um, then you could say it's a commodity. Um, this is a very popular narrative, the notion that basically like Bitcoin is like digital gold or something. Um, except commodities have a very precise definition. There's something that's you know fundamentally used as the input to some economic process. There's something that you know has some sort of physical existence that's used as part of you know some end consumer good or some economic process. Um, and it's not clear to me what that is with Bitcoin um, mm -hmm. because it has no intrinsic use case or value. Its only purpose is to basically be a vehicle for speculation. So I reject the notion that it's a commodity. Um, then there's the case that it's a security. And this to me makes the most sense. So like securities uh, are basically fiction, right? There's something that exists like in the minds of other humans, right? A bond doesn't actually have a real existence in the world. Like a stock doesn't have a real existence in the world. It's basically a, a shared delusion about uh, a structure that exists within a frame of a legal framework, right? Mm -hmm. That kind of gives certain counterparties the right to certain cash flows. Um, and cryptocurrencies are fictions as well. Um, they're just fictions, like the investment part of cryptocurrency is a fiction. Um, and what they look like to me is they look like an investment, a common enterprise in which people you know, 
buy products from a group of individuals who create a crypto network, right? Um, and the return that the investors are expecting to get from that investment uh, is proportional to the proportion or the promotion of the asset and the development work of the team, right? Um, so in that sense, cryptocurrencies look like most closely linked to like stocks. They're like securities basically in a yeah. common venture that tries to build sort of like a, like a wildcat bank, if you will. <laughs> um, yeah. And so they seem most like securities to me. And there's a notion that cryptocurrencies are art. So this is a weird one because like art's like an alternative investment. Right. And philosophically, this gets a bit mucky because there's nothing that you can't claim is art, right? Anything done with artistic intent is art, right? <laughs> so this is not really a falsifiable claim. Um, and economics itself doesn't really have an answer to like the question of like, what should a Monet be worth? What should a Picasso be worth? Um, a Picasso's worth whatever somebody will pay. You know, there's no <laughs> fundamental valuation model for what art is worth. Um, and so people that claim that crypto is basically like, you know, a piece of like libertarian performance art split into 21 million pieces. Um, that's a model, but it's not a really falsifiable claim. Um, there's nothing I can say that would disprove that because fundamentally the notion of art is like a philosophical one. Yeah. And so to me, the conclusion is very natural. Um, cryptocurrencies are securities, full stop. Mm-hmm. And you you mentioned this a little bit uh, in 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 the securities definition, but you know the the the, the underlying value in, in in these crypto assets is to get more and more people into the asset to inflate the price because you know the only way that you can kind of make make money on these things is is by price appreciation and so you know it naturally kind of smells like a pyramid in a in a in a in a Ponzi scheme, um, you know in 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 what ways. Um, are cryptocurrency like cryptocurrencies Ponzi's like in the most simple example definition? Um, because that's kind of one of the things that I talk to or, or or that I mention when I talk to people that are very bullish on on crypto is like, you know, I'll say, hey, you know, this is basically a Ponzi scheme, and they're like, yeah, but you know, it doesn't matter because it's going to go up, um, and that's kind of the sentiment that I've gotten. Yeah, I mean, so if we accept the premise that they're securities, then like unlike a traditional company, there's no income, right? There's no product that's being sold, mm-hmm. right? Um, so like, you know, your average company goes off and sells goods and services to the public and that brings in income and then the equity in that company is priced in terms of future cash flows, right? It's a kind of standard valuation model for these things. Um, except with cryptocurrencies, if we view them as securities, they're securities that have no income. Uh, there's no cash flows. Um, and so, um, you know, if we apply the kind of standard valuation models then they should be worthless, right? Um, and so as an asset, then they're basically like a purely greater fool asset, right? They purely exist to basically offload on another sucker after you. And that has to go on forever. So it presupposes this kind of infinite chain of suckers that will just keep dumping money into the thing forever um, on a product that has no underlying intrinsic value and no income. Um, and so naturally the kind of the comparison to the pyramid scheme kind of <laughs> becomes a bit, bit apt because when you buy this thing, then you have to basically just dump it on a greater fool and they have to do the same thing and so on and so on. Um, and that to me seems like a, a recipe for a bit of a disaster really, because um, there's only, it can only grow to a certain point uh, where you basically um, at some point uh, outflows exceed inflows into the whole scheme and then the whole thing basically has to collapse because most people can't get their money out of it. 
Um, and, you know, we've seen how those things end, just like we had in Albania. And my fear is that a lot of these things are going to go the same way. What about the idea of staking cryptocurrencies to get yield? Um, and I know some of these like APRs that have been touted on, on certain crypto assets is like mind blowing. Um, and maybe, maybe this gets into a little bit of the DeFi, which, which I don't necessarily want to discuss too much because that's a entirely different podcast, but, um, like if, if, if you can quote unquote stake a crypto to receive a yield and let's, let's call that a dividend yield equivalent to a company. Um, do you see any, any inherent intrinsic value in that or is that still worthless because the like the yield that you're getting from staking that relies on more people joining the other you know coin um or 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 the other token in whatever exchange that you're staking if that makes sense So, I mean, there's no free lunch at the end of the day, right? Um, if somebody's right. claiming that they're going to give you, you know, 300% APY, you should be asking some fundamental questions about where that money is coming from and what's the kind of counterparty risk of, you know, staking money in this scheme. Because if that was truly the case, then, you know, if you could stake like a million dollars inside that scheme, you'd be you know, like a trillionaire <laughs> in several years, right? Um, fundamentally, that does not seem to me like to be a realistic thing. Um, and, you know, fundamentally, I have to ask the question, where is that money coming from? Um, right. And with a lot of these sticking projects, they're coming from, like, basically an obscure form of high-yield investment fraud, in which you recruit a bunch of suckers into the scheme. You see it with a bunch of money that pays out some early uh, people, and they're, you know, creates the illusion of solvency up until the point where it doesn't, uh, and then the whole scheme collapses. And uh, it seems to me that we've created very, very Byzantine kind of Rube Goldberg machines to basically create <laughs> layers of obfuscation around high yield investment fraud. And fundamentally, when I see numbers that are like, you know, three or four digit APY, <laughs> you know, I just, just fundamentally can't be sustainable. I think they're just doing yeah. weird trickery to kind of get around this by paying the schemes out in other tokens, which are then staked in other tokens. It all seems like a giant pile of strength like that to me, really. Yeah, I mean it's hard it's hard to disagree with you there. Um, let's shift the discussion to Web three, which is an area that I am very interested in because I think Web three is kind of the culmination of all of these technologies, and it's 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 really in this Web three arena that 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 we can see in real time if these technologies solve a problem and if the problem is something that we actually experience or if the problem is something we're creating because we're bored with, with the Web2 infrastructure. So you titled the blog post, Web3 is Bullshit, which is a very blunt way of, <laughs> of kind of expressing <laughs> your view on this. So why don't you give us an elevator pitch for why Web3 is bullshit before we, do, before we dive into the nuances of, of kind of that, that stance? Well, the problem with discussing Web3 is it doesn't have a common definition. Right. Um, so... Maybe perhaps you could give me your definition and then we can kind of work backwards from that because like I certainly have like what I perceive as the definition of it, but it's even in my community in the software space, nobody really knows what it means. It's like one of those words like, you know, you know, synergy or agile or something yeah. doesn't have a universal meaning. Uh, it's kind of a buzzword. So what's your definition? So I'm gonna use Wikipedia's definition because I wanna take like the most basic um definition um that way i don't i don't kind of 
mumble um, along this like noodle that I have in, 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 in my brain about Web3. So according to Wikipedia, Web3 is an idea for a new iteration of the World Wide Web based on blockchains, which incorporates concepts including decentralization and token-based economics. And if I'm going to add anything in there, maybe like Brandon's definition is Web3 is um, decentralizing everything that we enjoyed about the centralization of Web 2.0 with the mission of bringing economics to the creator instead of to the platform. Um, that's kind of my definition, my, my, my rough take on it. There's probably a lot wrong in that. So let's just use that as, as, as your foundation and you can springboard off that. Yeah, I can work with that. Um, fundamentally though, that, that definition is one that basically just says like, we're just using another word for cryptocurrency. Like we're just saying like, okay, let's build, you know, a software based on cryptocurrency. Um, so to me, there's not much of a meaningful distinction between talking about Web3 versus talking about cryptocurrency because it's basically the same thing. Um, but the ideas people float out there, and they are ideas at this point, um, because a lot of the discussion about this is very like forward-facing, kind of discursive. It's about things that don't exist yet. Um, and it's really hard to point to any kind of real Web3 project out there because um, for all the sound and fury, like nobody's actually built it anything yet. It's all just ideas. Um, and there's a large investment um, push to kind of build these things, but it's not clear to me that anything has actually been built yet. Hmm. Um, but then my problem with Web3 goes back to the fundamental underlying that blockchain technology doesn't really work uh, to solve a real problem. Um, if you want to build the internet on token economics, it's not clear to me what the token economics are going to do if they don't satisfy like a means of payment. Um, Right, so if they're not being used for payments for goods or services, then okay, what we're building is you know speculative uh, assets tied to that are basically like you know unregulated securities with overlayers of friction. Yeah, that we're going to distribute to platform users to incentivize them to use the products. So like the idea that like okay, instead of um, you know, when you post a video on some sort of Web3 version of YouTube, instead of like getting like a payment, you're going to get like a little stake in the Web3 YouTube, like basically like a chunk of stock. Yeah. Um, and so that we're going to incentivize early users by basically giving them like a chunk of, you know, stock in the company. But except that stock is basically like a, a token. So basically it's acting as a proxy for equity. Um, yeah. So if we set aside the fact that that's illegal in the States, you can't really do that <laughs> under our current laws because uh, you're <laughs> basically doing a security offering to the public, uh, which is illegal. Um, then basically you're trying to bootstrap sort of software like web platforms by basically mm -hmm. building them on top of a pyramid scheme that basically incentivizes early users to go recruit more users on the platform and then mm -hmm. so on and so on with a kind of diminishing return given to later users. Um, and that may be a like decent way to bootstrap a user base, but at some point, like you reach the bottom of the pyramid and the amount of returns that people are gonna be getting from you know, onboarding onto the pay to play Twitter or the pay to play YouTube is gonna go down. And it's not clear to me that that's building a better world. It seems like that's building a lot more sort of, especially the MLMification, like multi-level marketing schemes yeah. of like everything in Silicon Valley. And to me, that does not seem like an improvement. That seems like a strictly worse web where everything is basically a pay-to-play slot machine kind of is bootstrapped on top of a pyramid scheme. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to see um, fundamentally where 
where you know you're you're starkly wrong on 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 any of those and again a lot of this is my my chauffeur's knowledge so maybe someone that's a lot smarter than me could could kind of poke holes but you mentioned kind of this kind of this pay to play um you know scheme and 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 you've even seen it in in some of these um you know like play to earn games and stuff like that where you know we don't have to get into the specifics of of of, of these individual games but it's you know building building games where people do meaningless work to earn tokens in a game that the only value they have in those tokens is the ability to convert it into the currency that they use to pay for other things, whether that's dollars or whether that's euros and stuff like that. And it's like, it goes back to that question. Like, are we building a world that, 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 that we actually want to live in? And are we, are we building things that actually add value to people's lives instead of just making them like monotonous robots? And these pay-to-play games are quite an absurd proposition to me. Basically, you're creating a game world, like a virtual environment, in which you're synthetically creating like floors that need to be like washed, <laughs> and that you're basically recruiting this like underclass of people to basically scrub digital floors all day for you know like small amounts of tokens in the game. Like to me, this doesn't seem like a, a fun world to be in. It seems like a sort of bleak, kind of dystopian yeah. version of like you know hyper capitalism as we have this kind of underclass that basically just exists to like do mundane bullshit jobs inside this virtual world that are not fun um basically just that we can kind of sustain a giant pyramid scheme uh to me this does not seem like a sustainable enterprise well and it goes back to and I'm, i'm trying to pull up that article that you linked. Um, oh, Paul, yeah, Paul Butler's play to earn and bullshit jobs. And one of the things he says, and I'm going to see if I can, if I can pull up the exact quote. Um, and it was, it was, it was at the end and it was such a good article. Um, oh, what does he say? This article is brilliant. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is, this is kind of the second to last paragraph that is, that is just unbelievably powerful if you if you kind of think about these 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 play to earn web3 games he says quote ultimately in-game labor is just a rebranding of gameplay designed to be dull enough that rich players will pay to outsource it to poor players in spite of being presented as the future of work by some venture capitalists the incentives just don't make sense floors and this right here is the most important sentence Floors don't have to be swept in the metaverse unless they're designed to need sweeping, which is unbelievably powerful. And it goes back to this idea of like, you promise this decentralization, you promise this power to the creators, but like, where do they get their power from? If you want to use power as, hey, I can work to earn tokens by sweeping floors in a virtual world. The power isn't in your ability to earn tokens through a play to earn game, the power is in the platform and the software engineers code that says, Hey, our floors need to be swept. And what's to stop the software engineer from saying, you know what, that's kind of a stupid feature. Like, let's just get rid of it. And then there goes your power. Like there goes your ability to earn tokens. Yeah. I mean, just the entire premise that like people are just going to spend their days like grinding their characters in some virtual space scrubbing floors does not sound very fun to me like what's the value added here other than basically i mean it's not clear to me what what, what the value is um it seems like not kind of the kind of software we'd want to build and not the kind of world we want to inhabit um and so i reject the notion of these pay-to-play games outright they seem not fun which is the entire purpose of the game 
Yeah, I mean, and 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 just just as a personal anecdote to that, like I used to play RuneScape when I was when I was you know younger in my in my in my early teens, and 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 you had people that like created bots to just chop down wood so that these people could get the highest level of like you know wood chopper, and like I just I just think that if you if you create these mundane games, people are going to find ways to. Uh, create bots to just do it for them. And then it becomes just like another mining operation online that's using compute and bandwidth and storage for nothing. And um, I think that's kind of a great way to segue into the technical issues, which I just mentioned are computing, bandwidth, and storage. So if you can you know, elaborate on these three technical issues that Web3 faces and, and why these issues just don't need to exist and, 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 and why they're maybe just being created, through Web3? Yeah, so I can go through that, like three different problems. So there's the compute problem, um, which is the notion that we're gonna move computation to the blockchain. We're gonna run programs in a distributed fashion that are gonna kind of have a single source of truth about some, some inputs and some outputs, right? Except that if you look at the technology as it is today, um, and I'll get kind of into the, the technical weeds here a little bit, like the Ethereum virtual machine, is at the heart of the Ethereum blockchain that like runs these so-called smart contracts. Right. It's an absurdly slow computer. Like you have to go back to like the 1970s to kind of find something as slow as this thing is. Um, it's like an Atari 2600 in terms of its compute power. Um, so you can really run a very, very small amount of computation on these things. And then everything else gets pushed, you know, off the chain uh, into services that run on like traditional infrastructure. Um, and the notion that we can do very, very complex logic on top of these you know, smart contracting platforms is absurd because the technology simply doesn't exist yet. Uh, and despite billions and billions of dollars of investment in this stuff, like it hasn't gotten any faster because fundamentally from like a pure computer science perspective, the only way that these things would scale is by becoming the very centralized services they were aimed to displace. Um, so the way you speed up decentralized systems is by making them more centralized, right? Right. And then at that point, like, what's the value proposition at all? Um, if you're just basically going to run, you know, instead of running on the Ethereum blockchain, you're running on Amazon Web Services, right? Uh, what's the blockchain yeah. there for in the purpose, right? Yep. Um, and then we go to the bandwidth problem. Um, and there's kind of two aspects to bandwidth, right? Um, so it turns out, you know, compute time in servers, like, um, for the last 10, 15 years, have just been, like, crashing it's this kind of race to the bottom because mm -hmm. it's just the economies of scale rather like cloud computing has given basically everybody on earth basically as much unlimited compute time as they possibly can buy at this point it's very 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 cheap these days like amazon and google driven the cost down to almost nothing now and that's a great progress that's like that's great for humanity um right. which is the exact opposite in the blockchain world blockchain world trying to make compute as expensive as possible so it turns out if you want to deliver content to a large number of people on earth um, it turns out you're not going to beat the Amazons and the Googles of the world. They just have this down to like a really, really efficient way of like managing servers and data centers. Um, and so fundamentally centralized servers are always going to be faster to deliver content to end customers and end users um, than some decentralized network. And that's just a fundamental like, uh, like base truth about like topology of networking systems and computer science. Um, and then the aspect is like the if there's a service being rendered by the by the blockchain service, right, it fundamentally has to serve some need for end consumers, right? Uh, and that involves unfortunately interfacing with the real world, um, right. which means you have to basically, you know, take calls from customers, they have enough support, right? And you have to basically, you know, 
have entry points into existing systems that already exist in the world, right? And then at that point, by the time we've created like a you know admin layer by which people can modify all the data on the blockchain and delete things and amend customer records, you've basically just recreated uh, like Facebook by another name at that point, except right. you basically might use a little bit of blockchain technology, but you have a fundamentally a centralized company which is doing exactly everything that Facebook is doing. So then what's the point? Um, and then uh, the third one's like the data storage problem. Um, so fundamentally storing data on the blockchain is absurdly expensive. If you want to store like even the simplest image of a cat on the Ethereum blockchain, it costs like $20,000 to basically store that amount of data. Wow. Really, really, really expensive, <laughs> right? That's why all these NFTs are like hosted off chain because they can't actually host data on the blockchain because wow. it's so damn expensive, right? Um, so fundamentally, like um, the question is, the state is going to live on centralized servers anyways, because you have to do things like GDPR, which is like data protection here in Europe. Like if mm -hmm. people upload offensive, like, you know, you know, sexual content and has to be removed, right? Um, and this is basically just like, you run a business, you just basically have to you know, curate data as part of like your legal obligations to the rest of society. Um, and at that point, basically you've centralized one party that controls the read and write and then your append-only blockchain is basically pointless at that point because everything is hosted off-chain. And so then really, again, what's the point? So these three aspects kind of lead to logical contradictions if you try to build real companies at scale on top of the technology. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of this reductive and absurdum argument that like if you actually were to build any of these things at scale, they become the very centralized servers that they're aiming to replace, at which point then there's no point to using the blockchain at all. Right. And it and it even reminds me, and let me know if this is a wrong analogy to use, but it reminds me of Milton Friedman's example of trying to create like a pencil or trying to deconstruct the cost of a pencil if you know the invisible hand wasn't at work, um, you know, bringing all of these all of these parts of the pencil together in the cheapest cost possible. And what it sounds like is is is, is Web three is almost this technological version of a pencil where you're trying to deconstruct every part of it and what ends up happening is you create a pencil that is hundreds of times more expensive and hundreds of times the cost, um, or I'm sorry, not the cost, but hundreds of times just the time commitment um, when you could just go out to Staples and, 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 and buy a Ticonderoga for 50 cents. Um, is, that, is that kind of a good analogy or, 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 or one that tracks logically with how you're interpreting Web3? Kind of. I mean, it's important to realize that like all these technologies that we've done to like host web services and websites and build web applications have been brought down because of economies of scale down to very, very low levels. So the notion that we need to burn all of that infrastructure down and rebuild it from scratch when the current one is already quite decentralized um, for a notion that we're going to re-decentralize it again seems to be a very absurd proposition. It's not clear what the end goal is. And it seems like a very, very expensive civilizational project to do. Basically just to have a bunch of like toll booths on top of every single site on the internet and take a custom bespoke token to operate. It doesn't seem yeah. like to me that this is going in the right direction. It seems to be like regressing back to some sort of super primitive version of the internet that happens to run on like coin-operated slot, <laughs> yeah. casino token, right? I don't know and what so, the value of that is here. 
And so, and so maybe a better example then instead of, instead of that, that, that pencil example is to think of web three as like this, this carnival where to enter, you need one form of, 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 of token, let's say Ethereum, but then to play every single individual game inside of that carnival, you need a different token of different size of different, of different weight and specifications. And you can only play that game if you have all of the tokens that you need to play with, um, which sounds like a terrible carnival to go to. You're exactly right on that. I mean, that's not so much the kind of world or the kind of internet that I want to live in. And there's actually kind of another historical analog. Um, back in the early American days, uh, companies used to basically issue what was called company script, which is basically private money that was basically issued by the company that they would give to their customers and to their employees. Um, and then people like this, like company talents, were like the mines would basically have a, a company store, they pay their employees in like company dollars. And you could only use the company dollars at the company store. Um, and it was basically this closed community of this like economic zone, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it turns out that's really actually quite a predatory system um, because you basically lock customers into working for you by issuing private money that they can't get out of the system. Um, and this was actually banned in most of Europe and the United States um, a while back. And it seems like we're trying to synthesize the bad ideas of like company script with the bad ideas of wildcat banking and then bring that to like the 21st century <laughs> by layering that on top of every single web platform that already exists right. uh, to build some sort of looks like a very dystopian world to me. Mm -hmm. The last issue I want to touch on is NFTs before we kind of get into these, you know, concluding questions. And I've got, I've got like kind of one giant question that I'd love to unpack right at the end, but I listened to the Patrick O'Shaughnessy podcast with Gabriel Lydon. I hope I'm saying his last name correct. Um, and he he in 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 one way opened my eyes on on kind of the potentiality of of, of NFTs and and kind of the future that that they that they could create. Um, but I wanna I wanna give you know kind of the bull and bear case a fair shake here because I don't know where I sit yet. Um, I don't have enough knowledge to take a to 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 take a stance. So. I'm going to say uh, one of one of the quotes from his from from Leiden's podcast, um, and then we can kind of use that as 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 a way to get your your take on on NFTs. And so what Leiden says is quote, and now what we're seeing with NFTs, where instead of the game developer creating the security around the item, we have Ethereum creating security around the items. So literally, everybody on Earth now has the same monetization abilities that a video game has. End quote. And what it sounds like Leiden saying here, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it sounds like NFTs are this way for creators to kind of monetize their talents through Ethereum that they otherwise wouldn't be able to under a more general Web.2 infrastructure. Um, so what are, what are your thoughts on that? And then if that's, if that's not true or, or if you don't agree with that, what are, what are the ways in which you don't agree? Ooh, so NFTs are a tricky one. Like every journalist I talk to doesn't understand these things because they're quite, <laughs> they touch on a lot of like philosophical problems. And yeah. I'd say my issues with NFTs relate to the underlying philosophy. And so if I, if I were to give you my kind of my description about NFTs, I like to use a metaphor. Like, so imagine like it's my like wife's birthday or something and I want to buy her like a handbag. So I go to like, like the Hermes store or something and like they say, oh, we don't have any handbags but I'll sell you this receipt that costs exactly as much as the handbag. And then you can just give that to her and then she can like just have the receipt and she can sell that receipt around. 
and it's basically just as good as a handbag, right? So I buy the receipt for you know some obscene amount of money. I think I paid you know, twenty thousand pounds or something, right? Um, and then I go take the receipt back to her. And what is she going to say? She's going to think I've gone completely mental. Um, <laughs> but this is the thing that you can buy now. I mean, she's going to tell me, Stephen, you got swindled by this chap, right? <laughs> because the, you know the handbag is not the receipt, but you could pretend that the receipt is the handbag, and maybe you could even find somebody that would buy your receipt from you. But it all exists because of this sort of collective delusion. Mm. Um, and if you don't buy into the delusion, you think it's just a receipt. Um, and NFTs are that. Like, there's no actual connection between the token and whatever you want to, you know, say the token represents. Right? I can sell a token that says like I am the owner of the Mona Lisa. If enough people believe that it is, I guess that sort of conveys some notion of ownership but it's not clear to me that that's anything more than like sort of what's called the tinkerbell effect like it's basically just like kind of a a pseudo cult about convincing people that like this thing actually has value because of some arbitrary reason um and so the metaphor that's also quite apt is like the star naming metaphor so back in the 90s uh, there used to be these kind of companies that would let you kind of go off and name like a star after your loved one so you'd pay yep. them you know 50 quid or something and they basically say oh they'd name the star after your wife or something Right now, there's no connection between that star, which exists like you know 20,000 light years away, and your your, your wife, right? Yeah. It doesn't. There's no actual. It's just how much bullshit you're willing to buy from the person that keeps the star <laughs> registry, right? That's and right. So yeah, they, maybe, maybe that star has value to you, but it's not clear to me that it has universal value. And the thing about the star registry is there could be multiple ones of them, right? There could be one here in the UK, there could be one in you know the United States. Like which one's the true one, right? Well, who's to say? It's all basically just collective delusion uh, and nfts seem to be basically that um, they're basically ways of sort of buying receipts of nothing philosophically and the connection between the thing that you're buying and sort of the token is very philosophically ambiguous to me uh, but it's something that people want to buy and i can't deny that but it seems very strange to me um, that people want this yeah, I agree. Um, I think there's a lot of overlap. There was a great article in Vox, I think a couple weeks ago, comparing NFTs and Beanie Babies, and it's just too easy. It's it's too easy to make the comparison. It's almost you know quite scary. Um, and there's that vintage picture, right, of 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 that couple, um, you know, d- divvying out their beanie baby collection and if you roll that forward another five to ten years like what does that divorce case look like it's someone you know sharing their screen on zoom saying you know hey here's my file of nft jpegs like these are mine and then you've got a judge saying like all right well why don't you take the picture of that drunk ape and move it over to sally's file like that's her nft like (laughs) just like it's kind of it's kind of mind blowing to kind of run it out. Um, but there is there is one other quote from that podcast that that again I want to I want to get your take on. Um, and so Leiden Leiden says quote and not only that it's superior to the in app purchase noting NFTs um, because it's tradable and it's speculative. When people are buying stuff in a free-to-play game, the only thing they get in return is the experience. That's it. If they stop playing the game, that's it. They don't get anything. They just get nothing. But 
they get the experience and it's good enough. It's good enough to be $80 billion a year just for the experience. So what happens when these things are tradable and speculative are and, and guaranteed rare, I think it's 10x or maybe actually more thinking of the value of an NFT marketplace. Um, I think that people are vastly underestimating what's about to happen. They don't see it in their regular life. They don't work in businesses that do this kind of stuff, end quote. Um, and so my first question when, when, when reading this is, do you think that the ability to speculate and trade these instruments, let's call them the ability to kind of mint these in-app purchases inside video games and, and, and to make a market to trade and speculate on these things, do you think that that's a net positive to society? Um, why, why or why not? Well, I'm not a video gamer myself. Um, so the appeal of these things is admittedly kind of illusory to me uh, because I just simply don't play video games, right? Um, but it seems to me that all of the technology to do these things already existed. Like if you go on a lot of games from like, you know, before sort of pay to play things existed, like the Diablo store for something, example, basically had a bunch of items that you could like, there's like an auction house that you could go and buy like a bigger sword or something or some spells or whatever, some sort of in-game item. Um, so that already existed. Um, and the only difference is they just took dollars, which is probably what most people want to pay with these things anyways. So if you want to do that, why are we introducing this artificial friction uh, that you have to buy some, you know, <laughs> some wildcat banknote from the game issuer um, in order to buy in-game items? Like I guess it means it's going to be this in-game item, but like why don't let people just pay directly in dollars, and then if they want to go speculate on you know, the price appreciation of this, like, you know, this magical sword or something, then, you know, the technology already exists now. You don't need the blockchain to do that. Um, except that probably also brings a lot of these items under a certain regulatory framework as well, because, you know, imagine there was like a sword that sold for, you know, $20 million or something, then, you know, this would be, you know, the game platform would basically be acting as a, basically a broker and probably like a money transmitter as well. Um, and I think, any of the appeal about using blockchain to do this is probably just to arbitrage the regulation around these things. And my fear is that basically it's going to bring sort of in-game, you know, it's going to bring out-of-game money laundering and criminality into the world of the game environment where people are basically trading these things as a means to, you know, do real-world transactions in the game world. And to me, that kind of defeats the whole kind of notion of the game world itself. Mm -hmm. It doesn't become fun anymore. It becomes like a job. People are basically going to yep. make this their professional existence to basically arbitrage swords in yeah. the game or something. And again, it's like, does that then distill down to the whole like bullshit jobs thing where you just become like a market maker inside of Fortnite instead of actually playing the game with your friends? Exactly. And from what I understand, a lot of the gamers don't really like the kind of over-commercialization of the experience because then that gives basically people who are fabulously wealthy the ability to like instantly win all the time. Yeah. Like if you just have a million dollars, you can go buy the magical sword that let you slay any enemy in like one right. hit, right? That basically makes the game less fun. So like the yeah. over-commercialization of it basically destroys the entire premise. I find the, the notion that like turning you know, every single fantasy game into kind of a simulacrum of the penny stock market is probably not where the world wants to go. I think it's also a layer deeper than that though, right? Because what Leiden's saying here is, is, is when you buy stuff in free to play, the only thing you get is the experience in that game. 
And while that's true, I don't see the utility of, of being able to transfer what you buy in that free-to-play game outside of that game. For instance, if I'm playing Fortnite and I buy this character, let's say I buy this new gun, there's zero utility in my ability to use that gun outside of that platform. And so I don't necessarily agree with the fact that like, you need to have these things off-prem, for instance, to um, you know, really see the return in these things because I can't take that gun that I bought in Fortnite and strap it to my character in Call of Duty. Now, the only way that this maybe works if we, if we run this out long enough, you end up going back to the entire centralization argument that NFTs and Web3 is trying to abolish because if you really wanna create these NFTs and these in-app purchases to have the most utilization, throughout the experience, then you create like one giant game or you create a series of games that all kind of look very similar. That way, the in-app purchase you buy in game one, you can use in game five. But then the games are going to be so similar that there's like, it's not like you would want to switch games, if that makes sense. So I think, I think, I think there's a bit of like a circular reference problem going on here. I've heard this proposition before that we basically would have this like token that would allow you to move assets from like one game to another, uh, except it seems to me that like since all of the game developers basically have to like co-develop the assets simultaneously, yeah. like the only thing basically this, this system would be doing is kind of acting as this kind of like clearinghouse, this centralized clearinghouse for in-game assets that are basically issued by a bunch of centralized issuers included by a centralized authority. Right. And to me, to me, all of this seems to be kind of stemming from the fact that the platforms do want to make these free to play games. And to me, that seems like a kind of inherently flawed model because like if you're not paying for the game experience, then you have to find ways to monetize it and turn users into dollars. Right. Mm -hmm. And so maybe this is all just a result of a kind of pathological business model. Like when I used to play games, I'll kind of age myself a little bit. Like I used to go buy like Baldur's Gate or something. Like I used to go to the store and I pay $40 for the game. And like, you know, then I get the whole game and like with no kind of transaction fees or anything. And like, that was a good experience. Like it seems to me like there's a broken business model that's kind of looking for solutions to how to unbreak it when it premise might be wrong in the first place. Right, no, I mean, I, 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 I agree. And then like what this ends up being is, is Google or one of the big platforms dominating gaming. And you go back to like the centralization where everything's run under one platform. And now you've got your NFTs that you can go intra games, but you lose all the beauty of, 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 of the independent nature of each game. Um, so this kind of brings us to then our concluding questions. And I'm going to, I'm going to preface this, this segment with like really this big, question that I've been dying to ask since we've dove into this topic. And my question is, it sounds like the, the, the arguments you're making against crypto, against web point or web, web 3.0, these are all logical in the sense of you don't need, you know, advanced degrees. You don't need to dive super deep into the weeds to kind of understand why what you're saying makes sense and why it presents a going concern for some of these technologies. And I juxtapose that with the fact that there is a lot of smart people heavily invested in this space and a lot of smart engineers that are pivoting into this space to try to build things here. And there's this clear disconnect. So why do you think that 
these people that obviously have this information that you've laid out, they know kind of the bear case against it. They know that, you know, everything that you say, like may, may be true. Like it, it, all of it might not be true to, 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 to degrees, but it's definitely not as optimistic as these maximalists are painting. Why do you think that they still choose to invest so much money into solutions for problems that don't need to exist or, or, you know, solutions to problems that they themselves are causing? Like there, there, there just seems to be this massive disconnect. You're right. There is. And like, I can't understand this enough is that like the crypto phenomenon is seems like one of the most controversial things to be working in the software industry. Um, and you're right, because there's kind of a speculative mania around it. Um, it's, and this is not unprecedented. There's been a lot of these things throughout history. And like the phenomenon we're seeing now is not all that removed from, you know, speculative meanings in the past. Like there are people that basically just got into Beanie Babies, not because they thought like this is gonna be the future of money or something, but they thought they were gonna make a quick buck, right? Uh, and this has been true about like the dot-com bubble, it's been true in the South Sea bubble, it's been true, you know, dozens of speculative meanings throughout history. The defining feature of speculative meaning is that people create and sell products detached from their underlying fundamentals. And they're things that have no intrinsic value other than like recruiting more fools into the scheme. And it turns out a lot of software engineers think that, well, maybe I should just get into the business of recruiting more fools into the scheme. And I can use sort of obfuscated language and techno babble to build these kind of unregulated securities and make a quick buck on it. Um, and also what that builds is a lot of these companies and these ventures that look like Potemkin villages. They're basically like ventures that issue equity, but they don't actually do anything other than promote the equity. Um, right. And it turns out there's a lot of people like in the hedge fund world that kind of like, well, whatever, there's no fundamentals, but like <laughs> I can manipulate the market and trade these things. And that creates a kind of inflow of liquidity and the kind of thing becomes a kind of speculative bubble that blows up. And that's happened throughout history. It just hasn't grown to the size like this we've seen before, or, except if you can select the Albanian pyramid, you know, like where it took in a percentage of like GDP. My fear is that like this bubble can grow to like be a significant percentage of global GDP, just like what yeah. happened in Albania. Yeah. And at some point, you know, what is the upper limit on how big this thing can grow? I mean, as a function of like all of human economic output, you know, like trillions, quadrillions, like at some point the bubble has to pop. And you know, I think the fact that there's no successful crypto businesses, except for crypto exchanges, which basically you know, are rent-seeking <laughs> platforms by which people, you know, onboard more users to trade more crypto, is quite right. telling. There's no, there's no Google of crypto. There's no Microsoft of crypto. It's just exchanges. Mm -hmm. uh, and to me, that screams like this kind of this speculative bubble detached from the underlying reality. And the fact that there's a lot of more people going into it doesn't really tell me much because a lot of people were selling like, you know, a lot of more people were selling CDOs back in 2008 too. I mean, like a lot of people were building, you know, a dot-com fraud back in 2000. You know, this is just the nature of markets and capitalism. I think it's always going to be the case. Yeah. And one of the real dangerous things about the, about this, about this bubble is that these, these games, whether, you know, it's these, the, these play to earns or these web 3.0 DAOs or stuff like that. There's, there's tremendous economies of dis scale where all the benefits you receive from network effects, when things go right, you experience them exponentially when things go bad. Um, and, and the, the rapidity um, and, and the swiftness of that downturn could be a lot faster 
and a lot more ruthless than, than, than people think. Um, because if people start to churn out, whether it's DAOs and people start to leave DAOs and they lose trust in the DAO or whether they start to realize like, hey, this is a bullshit job I'm doing and I can do something else. And then all of a sudden you, like you said, you kind of rip the floor out from underneath the scheme and then everything else crumbles, um, which is going to be, I mean, to, to, to say it's going to be incredible is, um, you know, not saying it's going to be awesome. It's just going to be incredible and like, oh my gosh, like the speed at which these things can collapse is unbelievable. You're exactly right. And this goes to like my fundamental, like central problem with the entire crypto space. And that's one thing, moral hazard. Uh, it's privatized wins and public losses where you hmm. basically turn every single one of these ventures um, into your own little personal pump and dump scheme where your user base becomes the exit liquidity. And it's true you can make money doing that for sure. But like at the end of the day, we create a lot of Potemkin villages that produce nothing but like speculative dog meme tokens and there's like, you know, 10,000 of these things and they're all massively negative some games that basically just extract wealth from the public to like three guys and make a killing off of them. It's yeah. not clear to me what this is really doing for the economy. Uh, it could absorb a large percentage of GDP that could be spent on productive enterprises, on companies that actually have value. Uh, and yeah. To me, like this kind of sucking sound I hear going into the space of you know, productive, you know, capital that could be put elsewhere going into dog tokens, that to me screams like there's a bit of a problem here. That's why yep. I kind of write about these things that speak out. That's the core reason. Yeah. Well, I appreciate all the work that you're doing to kind of speak out against this. Um, and let's get to a few more questions here. So, you know, we've, we, we've been very constructivist on, on crypto, very, um, you know, very, very harsh in, 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 in some aspects against its use cases. What are some things that you're excited about with technology or the future? Um, maybe stepping outside of crypto and, 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 and Web3, just maybe there's technologies that are being built or platforms that are being constructed that actually have you excited about kind of the future of, of, of what people are building. Within the software industry or within like technology as a whole? We can go technology as a whole, whatever, whichever way you want to take it. Oh, I mean, things I'm bullish on. There's a lot of exciting things happening in software. I think the machine learning revolution is going to be huge on the scale of human history. I think we're just kind of just in the first decade of that. And the advances that are being done in like, you know, protein folding and you know, all these games that are being solved and advances in speech recognition and image processing are really, really cool. Um, and we're just at the early days of that. And I think that's going to lead us to some really, really bright future. Uh, where a lot of you know menial tasks and kind of bullshit jobs are going to be kind of automated away, um, and that's going to be a very different future that we live in. It's not clear to me that we have the kind of right framework in our society to adapt to that world, but I'm more optimistic that we're going to kind of figure that out um, because that kind of is a space where the innovation, where the innovation is actually real. There's like actual computer science being getting done here. Um, it's kind of the exact opposite of the crypto world, where there's you know there's a lot of bullshit in machine learning. But there's some very kernels and very real things versus in the crypto world, it's like it's mostly bullshit. Um, it draws this speculative asset bubbles for no reason. Um, and then, you know, nuclear fusion is going to be a very interesting thing. It's always been like kind of 30 years out, uh, but I think that's going to be a really uh, important breakthrough on the scale of human history when we finally get it physically realized. And I don't see any reason that it can't be, um, you know, a world in which we have basically post scarcity. You know, energy requirements, like where we can produce almost limitless energy, is very, very appealing. <laughs> um, 
in you know cloud computing is still advancing as well. I mean, um, these days you can buy extremely powerful um, you know compute clusters to do all sorts of tasks that we couldn't even do like 10, 15 years ago. And the speed at which that has been developing is staggering. Um, and you know, I'm just bullish on the fact that um, a lot of enterprises are going to become more efficient versions of themselves. So even things like um, robotic process automation, which is basically a way of you know automating internal workflows inside of companies, uh, is seeing kind of a renaissance at the moment, which is kind of no code um, space that kind of aims to bring some of the capacities of like that strictly developers have had in the past to more uh, business-facing uh, people and basically giving them the tools to, you know, streamline aspects of their business in ways that kind of improve general performance of the company. Because um, a lot of the world runs on very, very ancient legacy software, more so than a lot of people realize. And when that becomes more streamlined versions of itself, then companies, like entire sectors get more efficient. And that's only a good thing in my mind. So those are the four areas I see as kind of big areas to look into in the next 10, 20 years. Awesome. And then... If you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Oh, <laughs> let's see. Um, from the past or the present. Um, so I'm actually a, a lapsed physicist by training. So before I kind of went to the dark side and started working in finance, <laughs> the common path these days. So I'm, I'm quite, uh, have a lot of regard for, for Einstein. He was a brilliant man that kind of advanced the frontiers of human knowledge in ways that few people in history have ever done. So I would certainly love to sit down and have dinner with him. Uh, he was a brilliant man. Um, and um, also like, um, yeah, I'll say Einstein. <laughs> awesome. That Einstein's been pretty popular, so um, <laughs> that 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 one does not. I mean, it'd be it'd be it'd be sweet to get a chance to talk to him. I mean, shoot, just ask him about. Hey, like here are the suppositions of Web three and NFTs. Like, what do you think about that? <laughs> just like, have him riff on that. <laughs> Create like Einstein tokens. Um, people would be all over that. But uh, Stephen, this has been such a good conversation. Um, I know we went a little bit over an hour and a half, but I can't wait to release this thing. Um, I hope, I hope that, uh, what I've learned in this hour and a half translates, um, into, into other people learning as much as I did during this conversation, uh, keep up the great work and, um, you know, please don't stop shedding light onto some of the dark sides of, of, of these technologies that are, that are being built. Thanks for a lovely conversation as well. Take care. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.